go to the Lord in prayer and we will continue our study in the book of Colossians. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth we've already heard this morning. We're thankful that You have loved us with an everlasting love. We're thankful that though there are few here this morning, that we can take courage as a little flock knowing that our Father has chosen to give us the kingdom. And we're grateful for all that we have in Christ, all the spiritual blessings and resources that have been granted to us in the Son of God, the perfect spotless Lamb who is our substitute. And we're thankful for Your Word that You've given to us. I pray that as a people we would not be conformed to the world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we would fill our minds with the truth of Scripture, give our brain a bath in the Word of God. I pray that uh, we would be a faithful body as we are already doing. Uh, Many members, one body, different functions, various gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And I pray that we would continue to exercise the gifts according to Your grace as You've given them to us. Or that with service and teaching and exhortation and giving and leadership and so on, we would utilize our gifts for the common good of the body and the glory of our Savior. I pray that we would love our enemies. That we would bless those who persecute us. And that we would practice hospitality. We would serve the Lord with diligence. That we would uh, not lag behind, Lord, in fervency for the Lord, but that we would serve You with all our might. And that we would even show kindness to our enemies and reap burning coals on their head if so be. And we're thankful that You will right every wrong, that all of our enemies will come to justice. It is our prayer and hope that unbelievers be converted. But we know that if they refuse to repent, if they refuse to believe, we take heart in the fact that You will break the teeth of the wicked that You will bring them to justice, You will bring them to destruction. All of those who hate You will be brought to shame. And we're, we're thankful for Your justice. And now as we come before You to open the Scripture, we pray for wisdom, we pray for understanding, we pray for illumination, we pray that our eyes would be open to behold wonderful things in Your law, and that You would use these truths to shape us more like Jesus. To which end we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Alright, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be yet again in Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Colossians chapter 4. And uh, we come this morning to the final section, the final passage in Colossians. So we can start throwing our party. We're finally almost there. After about nine months or so of working our way through this letter, we've come to the final text. Of course, it's going to take us two or three weeks to get through the text, as you already know. But at least we're there. The finish line is in view. We're almost through. So this morning we'll be in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Colossians 4, 7 to 18. And Paul wrote this letter out of a deep love for these believers at Colossae. There were false teachers there purveying lies, damnable lies, concerning the person and work of Christ. They were telling lies about Jesus, preaching another Jesus, distorting the truth about who He was. And so Paul wrote this letter to refute those errors and to uphold the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of Colossians, right? We've seen that. Christ is preeminent in all things. He is first, number one, in everything, even in our salvation and sanctification. You don't need to add to Christ. You don't need Christ plus philosophy. You don't need Christ plus modern science. You don't need Christ plus... Uh, asceticism, mysticism, legalism, etc. You have all that you need provided for you in Christ. He is a sufficient Savior. That's been Paul's theme. And keeping in mind the outline that I sent you back in November when we started our study of Colossians, the book can really be broken into three sections. There's an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. Introduction, body, 
and a conclusion. The introduction started in verse 1 and ran all the way to verse 12 of chapter 1. And it was comprised of Paul's salutation, his thanksgiving, and his prayer on behalf of the believers at Colossae. And then the body of the letter started in verse 13 of chapter 1 and ran all the way to verse 6 of chapter 4. And the body, of course, was comprised of primarily two sections. There was doctrine and practice, theology and duty. What you ought to believe, how you should live your life in life in light of what you believe. But now, this morning, we come to the conclusion. The conclusion of the letter, which obviously starts in verse 7 and runs all the way to the end. So this morning, let me read this passage for you. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you of the whole, about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Now, as I said, this is Paul's conclusion to the letter. And as is often the case in Paul's letter closings, he takes that occasion as an opportunity to mention the names of several of his laborers, his fellow co-workers that uh, help him in the ministry. He calls them his fellow workers for the kingdom of God in verse 11. His friends, those who were a part of his team and helped him reach the world with the gospel. Really, what we learned from this lengthy conclusion this morning is that Paul was a man with many friends. Paul was a man with many friends. Warren Wiersbe says that Paul was not only a soul winner, he was a friend maker. He was a friend maker. And as I've told you before, all of us are made for relationship, being made in the image of a triune God. And it's not good for the man to be alone, Genesis 2.18 says. We all need companionship, those beside us to come alongside us and help us live and walk the Christian life. Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 through 12 puts it this way. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. In other words, there is wisdom and strength in numbers. 
right? One man going to battle alone would be foolish. But a whole army of men going to battle increases the chances of victory. And so it is in the Christian life. If we're going to battle, if we're going to engage in spiritual warfare, if we're going to avoid the deception and the temptations of the evil one, if we're going to engage in faithful ministry and live a faithful Christian life, we need those around us as companions to walk alongside of us. We need help. We can't do it alone. That's the point. That's really what we learn this morning from this passage is that even the great Apostle Paul couldn't do it alone, and neither can we. And we find this principle all throughout the Scripture, this this principle of needing help. Many of the great servants of God throughout history have acknowledged their own need for help. In fact, in Numbers chapter 11, we see an example with Moses. Let me read a section to you from Numbers 11. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read the verses to you. But if you want to jot it down, I'm going to be reading Numbers 11, verses 10 through 17. Numbers 11, verses 10 to 17. And there we read this. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone, notice that, I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. You ever heard a pastor pray that way? Lord, give me other elders or just kill me. Now, I've never prayed that. I'll just let you know. My flock is too good for me to pray that. But Moses did. And here's what the Lord, how the Lord responded. Verse 16. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit whom is upon you, and will put him upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Right? In other words, Moses couldn't do it by himself. Moses needed help. He needed others around him to assist him as he led the people of God. And that's the principle of Scripture. We can't do it alone. Even our Lord Himself enlisted the help of others, right? Jesus, during the time of His earthly ministry, He didn't just walk around doing everything on His own. What did He do? Twelve men, right? He chose twelve men and spent a great chunk of His ministry pouring into twelve men. There's never been a man who has impacted the world like Jesus. Right? Do you think we could be better ministers than Jesus? Do you think we have wiser ministerial methodologies than Jesus? And Jesus' plan to reach the world was to take 12 men, pour Himself into those men, reproduce Himself through those men, so that they would go and do the same thing. That's what Jesus did. He chose 12 guys. He modeled faithfulness before them, trained them, equipped them, did ministry in front of them, and He sent them out of the world to do the very same thing. The ministry of Jesus teaches us that we need help. We need help. We cannot live the Christian life alone. We cannot engage in faithful ministry alone. 
We all need help. We need ministerial companions, friends, partners who come alongside us and help us. And the Apostle Paul knew that. We think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was a great apostle. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He is, in a large part, uh, the reason the Gospel spread throughout the Gentile world from Acts 13 and onward. And we know a lot about Paul. He was a great preeminent apostle in many ways. And yet, Paul knew that he couldn't do it by himself. You know, it's amazing. One of the things I find amazing is reading the end of Paul's letters and just finding these lists of names. All of these people that through the years, due to Paul's faithfulness in the ministry, he's raised up as a team around him to help him reach the world. In the gracious providence of God, I've experienced that myself. In Tennessee, when I first was converted, I started doing evangelism, and it was just me and my buddy Jeff Rice for a while. Just us two on the streets. Him covered in tattoos, and me scared of cop cars, and never having any really experience. But we're out doing evangelism, giving out tracts, and then by the time I left Tennessee, I was I had 15, 20 people out doing outreach with me sometimes. Then I get here, and a lot of times I'm at the abortion clinic by myself. Maybe one or two people coming out with me. And now, this last Wednesday, there were 15 of us, 20 of us out there doing outreach. So as you stay faithful in the ministry and in the Christian life, over the long haul, you start to see a team of people raised up around you to help you walk the Christian life. And that's what Paul knew. Paul knew he needed that. And so we see that in the end of Paul's letters. He needed help. We all need that. We need fellowship. We need community. We need discipling relationships. We need partners in the Christian life and the Christian ministry to help us. If we're going to make progress in the faith, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to reach the world for Christ, if you want to minister in a way that is effective, you cannot do it alone. We need faithful ministerial companions. But what do faithful ministerial companions look like? We need to know that, don't we? If we're going to be faithful ministry companions ourselves, and if we're going to pick the right companions for ourselves, we need to know what a faithful one looks like. The good news is Paul shows us in this text. As he lists his companions, we're going to learn what both faithful companions look like and what an unfaithful companion looks like. You know, this is a kind of a section of Scripture that people just skip over. This is why expository preaching is so important. There's sometimes when I get to preach passages, they're like, yeah, that's, that's powerful. I mean, I get to preach on hell this week. Cut the air conditioner off, let everybody warm up. I get to preach on hell this Sunday, right? That's a powerful sermon. But then, you know, you do consecutive exposition and you get to a passage like this. This is what we skip over. No one preaches topically and says, I'm going to preach on Colossians 4, 7 to 18 this week. You just don't do that. Who cares about these these antiquated names listed at the end of Paul's letter. Why do they matter? But they do matter. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, Paul says. And that means these names listed in Colossians 4 are profitable for us. And there's much for us to learn from these men. (coughs) So as we work our way through this passage, we're going to notice three things. Three things. We see Paul's ministerial companions, Paul's final exhortations, and Paul's closing words. His ministerial companions... His final exhortations and His closing words. And much like His introduction at the beginning, so His conclusion is filled with many practical principles for us to apply to our lives. And we'll consider those as we work through these verses. So first of all, notice Paul's ministerial companions. And we see several of them mentioned in verses 7-14. to And they could really be broken into two categories. Two categories. Those who are delivering the letter and those who are sending greetings. Those who are delivering the letter 
and those who were sending greetings. We'll look at the first category this morning in verses 7 and 9, and next week we'll look at the other category. So first of all, notice the ones delivering the letter in verses 7 to 9. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. As to all of my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord, will bring you information. So the first companion mentioned here is Tychicus. Tychicus. Apart from a very strange name, which looks like Tychicus, but it's really Tychicus. Apart from the weird name, what do we know about this guy? Why is this guy important? Who in the world is Tychicus? You know, we all know about Paul. We've heard of Peter. Of course, we know Jesus. We know maybe Saul from the Old Testament and David. But who in the world is this guy? This is a guy that perhaps would have gone unknown to the Christian church forever had it not been for Paul mentioning his name at the very end of the letter. So what can we learn from Tychicus? What kind of companion was he? Well, his name means fortunate. Fortunate. He was definitely fortunate to minister with the Apostle Paul and to have his name mentioned in the New Testament. But what else do we know about him? We really learn about him from five places in the New Testament. Right here in Colossians, and then in four other passages. So I want us to look at these four other passages first, and then we'll come back to Colossians. The first place we find Tychicus in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 4. And again, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it to you. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Luke writes this, After the uproar had ceased, and this is an uproar in Ephesus. Paul had been in Ephesus ministering for three years, and at the very end of it, they're finally getting tired of him. Right? I mean, they're saying that you know he's convincing us that gods made with hands are no gods at all. They're not buying our idols anymore. So they're angry with Paul. And it starts an uproar. But once it had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Paul now is now trying to get back to Syria through Macedonia. And verse 4 tells us who was with him. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. So Tychicus was from Asia, we learn from Acts 20. And more than likely, he was converted during Paul's three-year ministry there in Ephesus, when according to Acts 19.10, everyone who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. That would probably include Tychicus. He was converted, joined Paul's missionary team, and traveled with him. He was a part of this faithful missionary team of the Apostle Paul. And we see him mentioned again in Ephesians 6.21. And there Paul writes, But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. So that's in Ephesians 6. And remember, Ephesians was probably written right around the same time as Colossians. They're both considered prison epistles. And so apparently Tychicus was charged with the duty of carrying both the letter to the Ephesians and the letter of the Colossians. And for Paul to entrust this man with such a task tells us a lot about his character, doesn't it? Think about it. This man had the privilege of carrying the letters of Paul to their original recipients. He's carrying Scripture, inspired documents. What a high calling Tychicus had. But then we see him again in Titus chapter 3, verse 12. Titus 3, 12. And there we read, 
When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So you have Titus on the island of Crete carrying on the ministry of Paul, setting in order what remains, appointing elders, shepherding those churches. And so Paul now wants Titus to come to him, but for that to happen, these churches need a shepherd. And so one of the two candidates that might be sent to to, uh, Crete would be Tychicus. Tychicus was going to replace a man as prominent as Titus and shepherd the churches there. And then one more place, we find him in 2 Timothy 4.12. And there we simply read this. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. I have sent to Ephesus. Now why would he do that? Because Timothy was there shepherding the church in Ephesus. Paul wanted Timothy to come to him. He was soon to die. He wanted to see his dear friend one last time. But again, for Timothy to leave Ephesus, there was a need for a shepherd, and Paul decided that Tychicus was the guy. So Tychicus carried inspired letters. He carried the words of Paul, specifically the words of God, to these churches. He was charged with shepherding these churches in the place of Timothy and Titus as Paul's delegate. So clearly, he must have been a man who was trustworthy. A man that Paul had a lot of trust in. A man that he had a lot of respect for. So Tychicus must have been a trustworthy man. You know, Paul knew he couldn't do it all alone, right? Paul knew that he couldn't be everywhere at once. So he needed men in whom he could reproduce himself. Men like Timothy, men like Titus, and even men like Tychicus. And that's important for us as Christians, as pastors, church leaders, and even Christians in general. We need to understand the importance of discipleship, multiplication, reproducing ourselves and others. I mean, think about it. What is it that you're gifted at? What ministry has the Lord entrusted to you? How much easier would it be to train others to do that? To train others to come alongside you and help you to do that? Or when you're out, maybe you can't do it this day. Well, you have a brother that you can point to, or a sister. You can say, hey, she can do it. I've trained her. She can do it. We need to train others to be faithful in the ministry. Paul knew that. Paul knew that. Jesus knew that. Anyone who's ever impacted the world for the glory of God understands the importance of reproducing themselves and others. So Tychicus was faithful. We can deduce that just from those four passages in the New Testament. But now back to our text here in Colossians, verse 7, we learn a little bit more about Tychicus from the threefold description that is attributed to him. Look at verse 7. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. So a threefold description. Beloved brother, Faithful servant, fellow bondservant. First, Tychicus is a beloved brother. Very, very simple description, right? He's a brother whom we love. A brother whom we love. All Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ, having one father, being adopted into the same family, and thus we should love one another with a brotherly love. Tychicus was that. He was a true believer, a brother who was loved. But secondly, he was a faithful servant. A faithful servant. Two Greek words here. Pistos and diakonos. The word diakonos, where we get the word deacon, just means a servant in general. It refers to someone who kicks up dust running errands. Tychicus was a servant. And that word pistos there, translated faithful, it could mean trustworthy, reliable, believing. It's certainly true that Tychicus was believing. He was definitely a believer. But Paul's meaning to say here that Tychicus was faithful. He was a reliable person. He was trustworthy. And he had to be. If Paul was going to entrust his letters to him, 
if Paul was going to send this man to Crete and to Ephesus to fill in for Timothy and Titus, he had to be a faithful man. Is that said of us? Are we faithful? Are we faithful servants of Christ? What is it we want to hear when we stand before the Lord? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear, right? That's the way faithful Christians think of themselves. I'm just a waiter. Just a person who runs errands for the glory of God. And I'm faithful in the mission that the Lord has given to me. That was the kind of man Tychicus was. He could be trusted. He could be trusted to keep his promises, to honor his commitments. He was faithful to proclaim the same message Paul preached. He was a faithful man. And we all need companions like that, don't we? We've all been disappointed when we have people in our lives when we trust to be on time, to do what they're supposed to do, and they fail us. They fail us. But we need people in our lives who are trustworthy. And we need to be people like that. Is that the way you're... Do you honor your commitments? Are you someone that your friends and companions can trust to be faithful with what is entrusted to you? And you know, the Lord tells us throughout Scripture that those who are faithful in a little can be trusted in a lot, right? But if you blow it in a little, you, why would we trust you with anything else? So as we stay faithful in small things, perhaps the Lord will entrust even more to us. So Tychicus was faithful. But there's one more description of it. He was a fellow bondservant. A fellow bondservant in the Lord. That word bondservant, soon doulos, the word doulos means a slave. It refers to one who is owned by another. One who is under the authority of a master and has no ownership rights of his own. It's often translated servant in our Bibles because of the history of slavery in our culture and the sensitivity to that word. But it's what it means. It is a slave. It's not someone who just chooses to serve. It's someone who is owned. He doesn't have a choice. He's under the authority of a master. That's who Tychicus was. He understood that the entirety of his life belonged to Jesus Christ. It was all about Him. Owned by Him. You think that will impact your level of faithfulness? When you see yourself as being under the authority of another? Tychicus couldn't just wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I don't really want to deliver these letters today. I'd rather stay home and play PlayStation 3. Of course, he didn't have that option. But Tychicus knew he was under the authority of Christ. He was to be faithful. In Romans 1, Paul refers to himself as the bondservant of Christ Jesus. Or literally, the slave, the doulos of Christ Jesus. And Tychicus was Paul's fellow slave. And not just Tychicus, not just Paul, all Christians are slaves. Did you know that? We live in a very autonomous culture where people want freedom, but in reality, it's not complete freedom that you need. It's another form of slavery that you and I need. We need to be liberated from the slavery of sin and brought under the mastery and dominion of Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that believers have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. That is the definition of a Christian. One who cries out with Paul, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. All has been lost, surrendered, yielded to Him. Every area of my life belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the way Tychicus viewed himself. That's why he was faithful. Is that the way we view ourselves? Are there any areas of your life that you're holding on reserve, holding back for yourself? Or do you see everything? The way you manage your finances, the job you work, the the school you attend, the way you treat your family, the way you uh, get up and and work at your job. Do you see all of these things as for the glory of Jesus? And all of your life yielded 
to Him. That will produce a faithful Christian. One who is a slave of Jesus Christ. So now what specifically was Tychicus entrusted with here? The first and last part of verse 7 gives us some insight. As to all my affairs, Tychicus will bring you information. So Tychicus was coming from Rome where Paul was in prison to bring this letter to the church at Colossae and to bring them info concerning Paul's affairs, his circumstances. And so we know Paul was in prison. According to Acts 28, he was in, uh, under house arrest basically. He had a little freedom. And he would soon be released. Paul was released for a short time after his first imprisonment. Of course, we know he was imprisoned a second time and beheaded after that. So there was good news at least during the first imprisonment. So perhaps Tychicus was coming from Rome to Colossae with good news that the dear beloved apostle would soon be released. But in any case, verse 8 goes on to say, For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So two purposes there. He's coming to bring information about Paul's circumstances and to encourage the hearts of the Colossians, to comfort them. And isn't that the way we should live? We should want others to know about our affairs so they can pray. I told you a few weeks ago that you know people say, how are you doing? And what are we quick to say? I'm doing good, but I'm doing well. And a lot of times we're not. A lot of times we're lying. In reality, we should say, I'm doing horrible. Things aren't going well. We need to be honest so that people can pray for us. We want people to be able to apply the... the their words of their prayer and the words of Scripture to us with precision, like a surgeon applies his knife. And for us to do that, we've got to be upfront about our circumstances. We need to let people know how we're doing. We need to care about the other members of the church. We should call on one another, text one another throughout the week, see how one another's doing. Find out how we can pray for one another, how we can encourage one another. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you reached out to a fellow believer just to find out how they were? See how you could speak words of encouragement, words of Scripture to them build them up and edify them. We need to be that way. Paul wanted the Colossians to know about his affairs. And we could assume that the Colossians were concerned about Paul. Most of them had never met Paul, but they heard of him. And so they were concerned about him. But Tychicus was going to come bring information and encourage their hearts. So Tychicus is the first companion that Paul mentions here. Very faithful man. We can learn a lot from him. The need to be faithful. The need to be a trustworthy servant. But there's one more companion here mentioned in verse 9. And he's one that we've already discussed in passing before. And that is Anisimus. Anisimus. Look at verse 9. And with him, Anisimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. So Tychicus wasn't coming alone. He had someone coming with him. Anisimus would accompany him to Colossae. Now what do we know about this character, Anisimus? What do we know about him? He's only mentioned in two places in the New Testament. The first one is here, and the other place is in the book of Philemon. Philemon. So if you want, go ahead and turn with me for just a moment to Philemon. It's uh, right past the book of Titus, right before Hebrews, and it's one short chapter, so if you turn a little too fast, you'll probably miss it, like I just did. So Philemon, I want to read verse 10. So we're considering the character Anisimus. His name means useful. Useful, and it was a very common slave name, and that's exactly what Anisimus was. He was a slave. He was a slave. And 
the book of Philemon gives us some information about his circumstances. So the book of Philemon, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. In other words, Onesimus was converted through Paul's ministry there in Rome during his imprisonment. Verse 11. Who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And remember, his name means useful. So Paul's playing on words there. Verse 12. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Because what happens is Onesimus had run away from his slave owner, Philemon. He left Colossae, ran away, snuck out, and made the trip to Rome, a big city where he could blend in with everybody and get away. But he was converted through Paul's ministry. And now, under the authority of Paul, Onesimus has come to the conclusion that he needs to go back to his master. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? Slaves, obey your masters in everything, for this is pleasing the Lord, right? Onesimus was being taught that by Paul, so he was going back. And verse 14 says, But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So we have this man who's under the yoke of slavery in Colossae, runs away, the gospel radically changes his heart and life, and now he's willing to go back and submit to the slavery that in God's providence he finds himself under. Isn't that amazing? That the gospel transforms hearts like that? That Onesimus went from being a rebel and a sinner who didn't want anything to do with authority to a man converted, a man going back to the one who has earthly authority over him and submitting to him. And now he would be much more than a slave. He would be a beloved brother. Beloved brother. In fact, look at verse 9. That's how Paul describes him. As our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number. So like Tychicus, Onesimus was faithful. And just a short time after his conversion, this man had demonstrated genuine saving faith. How do we know we're truly believing? How do we know we have saving faith? Because we're faithful. Saving faith demonstrates itself in faithfulness. And Onesimus had demonstrated the fact that he was a true believer. So he's our faithful and beloved brother. That's the way they were to receive him. He was now coming back to his master. And notice that phrase there, who is one of your number. Paul was from Colossae, or Onesimus was from Colossae, which means Philemon was in Colossae, his slave owner, which means Tychicus and Onesimus are coming back to Colossae with both the letter to Colossians and the letter to Philemon, and he's coming back to submit to his own master. But he's not to be received as merely a runaway, rebellious slave. Not a slave to be punished. Now he's to be a brother, one loved in the Lord, to be treated like a believer, like a Christian. That's amazing. That's what the gospel does. And that's what the gospel's done in your heart. If you're really a believer, if you're really converted, the gospel's radically changed your heart. It's changed your affections. It's changed the way you live your life. We were all once God-hating rebellious sinners, but now, by grace, we've repented, been reconciled to God, and restored. That's the evidence that someone's a true believer. And that was the case with Onesimus. 
That's the amazing power of the Gospel. That's what the Gospel does. If the Gospel has not changed you, the Gospel has not saved you. If you're not changed by the Gospel, you're not saved by the Gospel. If you're not freed from the power and dominion of your sin, you're not freed from the penalty of your sin. The Gospel changes our lives. So the church at Colossae was to receive this new man, this transformed man, more than as a slave, but as a beloved brother in the Lord. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 11, Paul speaks of this renewal that takes place in the believer. And he says that it's a renewal in which there's no distinction between slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3.28 In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These social statuses are irrelevant to the way we treat one another in the kingdom of God. We're to love one another regardless of our social status. And then Paul adds at the very end here, verse 9, they will inform you about the whole situation. So Tychicus and Onesimus would come, deliver the letters, and update the Colossians as to what was going on with Paul and his missionary team. And notice that they will inform you. They're both coming, and they're both to be received equally as beloved brothers in the Lord. No distinction was to be made. You're not to receive Tychicus as a faithful pastor or church planner missionary, and all. Well, Onesimus, he's just this slave over here. We'll just punish him. Both of them were to be received equally as a brother in Christ. So in these three verses, we've become acquainted with two of Paul's companions here. Two of Paul's companions. We'll look at many more next week. But even from these three verses, there are many practical principles for us to draw out from the text. What are they? Let me give you a few. Number one, as I've already mentioned, have a team. Have a team. Have people around you who can walk the Christian life with you. People who can help you be faithful in ministry. That's what the local church is, right? The local church is a group of people, redeemed saints, called out of darkness into the light of God's kingdom, who together glorify God, pursue holiness, and reach the world for Christ. We must have the local church. You know, this idea that I can be a Christian and I don't need the local church is an unbiblical idea. The Scripture knows nothing of a Christian who's not plugged into the local church. In fact, if you don't love the local church, you have reason to believe you don't love Christ. How can you love Christ and not love the bride? First John, over and over again, the evidence we've passed out of death into life is we love the brethren. We love the people of God. So do you love the people of God? Are you plugged into the local church? And not just coming and showing up, but do you are you involved in the life of the church? Are there people in the church that you have discipling relationships with? You speak about the Word with. You're talking about the Word of God throughout the week and keeping up with one another. Are there people like that in your life that are discipling you? People you're discipling? We must be committed to the church. We need a team of people around us. And you know, it's our tendency to isolate ourselves when things get hard, isn't it? That's when we like to stay home. That's when we like to keep our conversations very brief. But that's when we need the fellowship of the body the most when we're struggling. So we can walk alongside one another and encourage one another. So have a team. Number two, we need to be faithful like Tychicus. We need to be faithful. He was faithful. He was a trustworthy person, a reliable person. We need to be that. Keep your commitments. Honor your, your promises. 
Be a man whose character, or a woman whose character demonstrates that you are trustworthy and a faithful person. And thirdly, like Anisimus, we need to be transformed by the Gospel. You need to examine your own heart today. We should all examine ourselves. Has the Gospel really changed us? Or are you like many other American evangelical Christians who go to church, read the Bible, but your life hasn't been changed? Your relationships are in shambles. You're living in sin. The Word of God isn't the delight of your heart. If so, you need to question whether or not you're in the faith. The Gospel transforms us. Fourthly, we need to be concerned about the affairs of others. We need to be concerned about the affairs of others. Check on each other throughout the week. Seek to encourage one another. Speak the Word of God to one another. In hopes that the Lord will use you to build up His people. There are two principles of application that Max Anders mentions in his commentary on this passage that I found very helpful. Number one, God uses ordinary people to accomplish His work. Aren't you thankful for that? Ordinary people like you and me. Who was Tychicus? We wouldn't even know who he was had it not been for Paul mentioning his name. Ordinary people. One man said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what we want to do. Ordinary people who just serve the Lord in our time and then die and go to be with Him in glory. So God uses ordinary people. And then secondly, vital ministry is accomplished through a team of people. That's what God does. He uses ordinary people like you and me working together as a team to advance His kingdom and bring glory to His name in the world. So brothers and sisters, as we labor together as a team in the strength that the Lord provides, as each of us seek to fulfill the specific, unique ministry that God has given to us, utilizing the gifts God has bestowed upon you, together, collectively, we can trust that God will use our endeavors to honor His name, advance His kingdom, and bring glory to His Son. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You've chosen to use people like us, people who are seemingly insignificant, people who were not very prominent by the world's standards. Not many of us were high and mighty and noble. And yet You've chosen people just like us, people like Tychicus and people like Onesimus, a slave, just a poor common slave in the first century. And yet he was useful to Paul and his ministry. Oh, that that would be said of people like us, that we would be faithful, that we would be useful, that we would labor together as a church, and that You would use our efforts as frail and weak as they are, energized by Your Spirit, to bring glory to our Lord. That's our desire, Father, that You would use us. We're thankful for this little church, a little flock of people who don't have much in terms of resources, not a lot in terms of numbers, but a faithful church that seeks to reach the world with the Gospel, fulfill their ministries, and honor the Word of God. We're confident that You honor churches like that. And so we're thankful. Please use us for Your glory. Amen. Alright, if you have your hymnals, we're going to be in hymn number 7. I don't have Sean in the front row this morning. Hymn 7, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee.